Lord, and we lift up this time to you, God. We give it to you, Lord. And we ask with eager, confident expectation that you would speak to each and every one of us or that you would get truth across to our hearts or that there would be there would be understanding of your word so that we could do something with it, that it wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, but it would change us from the inside out, Lord, and, and we would express in obedience the reality that we got something from you and the way that we live our lives. So please fill us with your spirit, guide us as we study your word in Jesus name. Amen. All right. If you recall, um, David finally, after this long awaited promise, some 15 to 22 years went by. God had promised David that he would be the king of Israel. We saw in second Samuel chapter five, that promise was finally fulfilled. And what God did was he established his kingdom through David. And we talked last week about how that was foreshadowing the kingdom to come being Jesus Christ. David is a type of Christ. Now, we're going to see in this chapter, chapter 6, that the kingdom is still incomplete. Okay, There's something missing, something significant that we haven't even heard of in a while since 1 Samuel chapter 7. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. Okay, It's in a specific place. But it's not with the tabernacle. And see, the Ark of the Covenant, it went in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. But the Ark of the Covenant has been separated from the tabernacle for about 70 years. So David, in this chapter, he's going to get a bunch of his best men. And he's going to go after the Ark of the Covenant. But in his first attempt, he doesn't do it God's way. And he makes a mistake. And someone's going to die because of that. But then God, see, he goes to radical measures to make it known that yes, he wants his people to worship him, but he has a specific way that he wants people to worship him. Title of this teaching is God's way of worship. God's way of worship. Now worship in the Bible is more than just singing praise songs. It's literally a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. We worship God in the way that we live our lives. In fact, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, Colossians 3, 23, it says, do everything as unto the Lord. We say everything that we watch, everything that we hear is an act of worship to God. At least it's an opportunity to worship God. Every single thing. See, we're called to do things for the Lord, but there's a specific way the Lord wants us to do things for Him. And we'll understand that as we unpack this chapter. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 says, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. So we see David gathers these 30,000 choice guys, like the best of the best, because this is a serious venture that David is leading them on. They need to get the Ark of the Covenant back. What David was trying to do, 
He was trying to establish Jerusalem as the central place of worship. If you remember the last chapter, he had a palace there. His house was built there. So the tabernacle's there at this point. So that that one missing piece, as we mentioned in the intro, is the Ark of the Covenant. This would bring the nation together under Jerusalem as the place of worship and the place of rulership. So David, he arises in verse 2, and he goes with the people who were with him. We see a lot of this in the beginning of David's reign. Even before he was a king, he was always with the people, right? He was leading them. They were following him. He did life with them. He didn't put himself above them. He's still doing that. Sadly, in a few chapters, we're going to see a change in chapter 11 specifically. And what were they doing? As I mentioned, they go to Baal Judah, where the ark was, to get the ark back. Now, there's a lot with the ark of the covenant. We won't get into too much detail. But there were three sacred things that were held in the ark of the covenant. You had a jar of manna. Remember when God provided manna from the sky for the Israelites during the Exodus. You also had Aaron's uh, uh, staff that budded. Okay, it, it budded. Actually, a dead thing came to life. Uh, and then, lastly, you had the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. So there was a lot of significant significant things that were held in the Ark of the Covenant, but the most significant thing of all is that it represented the presence of God, okay? The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. Now, uh, probably do a short little recap here so we can understand how the Ark of the Covenant got to where it was, especially if you weren't with us when we went through 1 Samuel. So we see in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that the Israelites... They brought the Ark of the Covenant into a battle against the Philistines. It was a picture of religiosity. They weren't putting their hope in God. They were putting their hope in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. God is not the Ark of the Covenant. He'll use the Ark of the Covenant. And it represents His presence. But when the Israelites did that, it didn't work out the way they thought it was going to. We see the Philistines actually captured the Ark. And then in chapter 5, they put the Ark of the Covenant in a temple with their God, the God Dagon, the primary God that they worshipped. And what's what happened? Basically, God destroyed the idol of Dagon. Then right after that, in the next, next chapter, they still have the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Philistines do, but but they start getting these tumors, okay? And they start getting having these plagues bestowed on them. So they're going, we need to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. We We need this thing to get out of here. So they take some cows and they send the Ark of the Covenant away. The Ark of the Covenant, it gets to a place called Beth Shemesh. And these guys, in foolishness, not listening to the word of God, they open the ark to see what's inside. And they die. Many people actually die during that time. So, then they have these guys from this place called Kirjath-Jerim. Go pick up the ark. Then they take the ark. And this is where the ark has been for the last 70 or so years. Now, Kirjath-Jerim, it's the same place as Baal Judah, okay? It's about 12 to 13 miles outside of Jerusalem, which will be significant as we get through this text. So David... He's going back to get the Ark of the Covenant to bring it back to Jerusalem and specifically put it back in the tabernacle where it was supposed to be. The Ark of the Covenant in verse 2 
It says, they're the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. The text is emphasizing the fact that the ark of the covenant represented God's presence. It represented God's name. And there's some really cool studies when you actually um, try to get a picture of the ark of the covenant and how it points to Jesus. And it's a, actually a fascinating study, but we can't get into that tonight. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3, So they set the ark of, a, uh, ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abin and Dab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abin and Dab, drove the new cart. Say that ten times fast. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. So they put the ark of the covenant on a cart. Well, this is a problem. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be carried a specific way. In Exodus chapter 25, we see that the Ark of the Covenant was only supposed to be carried by the Levites, by the priests. And they were supposed to carry it with these specific designated wooden rods that had gold on them. And that was the only way the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be moved. It was supposed to be carried. Also, we see in Numbers chapter 4, this is significant in numbers chapter 4 verse 15 that the ark of the covenant wasn't supposed to be touched okay it wasn't supposed to be touched that's why they would use the rods to carry it so setting the ark of the covenant the ark of god on this cart was a direct act of disobedience see david's heart is in the right place wanting to bring the ark of the covenant back to jerusalem so it could be in the tabernacle but he wasn't doing it the right way. His first point, worship with the right heart, the right way. Worship with the right heart, the right way. This was an act of worship for David. He thought he was doing something that was honoring God. And it would have if he was doing it the right way. See, it's obviously important to have the right heart when we worship God, but we can't just have the right heart. We got to do it the right way. David's intentions were good. Sometimes ours are as well, but there's a specific way that God wants to go about doing things. There's a specific way that God wants us to worship him. How is that? Well, Jesus sums it up like this in John chapter four, verses uh, verse 24 In John 4, 24, he says, worship God in spirit and in truth. God the Father, he desires to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. In spirit, yeah, with the innermost part of us, with everything within us. It's got to be an internal thing before it becomes an external thing. Literally, the eternal aspect of us. That's what God wants us to worship him with. But not just that, in truth. We worship God according to the truth of his word, not according to our truth or what we think, according to how he lays it out in his word. We worship the God that's revealed in the truth of the scriptures, not some other God that we made up in our mind, but the truth of the God that's revealed in the scriptures and the truth that he reveals as to how he desires to be worshiped. See, they didn't do this. They go about putting the ark on this new cart. We often want to use the new cart. 
in our way to worship God. We often want to, to take the easy route. It's easier to put it on a cart. And when we look at our society today, what is the new cart? What are the easy ways that we choose to worship God that might not be according to his word? Now, I'm not saying any of these things are bad, but I see this happen a lot in the church as technology continues to grow. Technology is not a bad thing. It's how we use it. Sometimes people will fall into this trap where they're saying, okay, I'm not going to read my Bible anymore. I'm just going to listen to sermons online. Is it bad to listen to sermons online? No, But reading your Bible is even more important than listening to sermons online. Or what about this? I'm not going to evangelize to people face to face or have conversations about Jesus, but I don't mind posting a a verse on Facebook. Wait a minute. Are there, is there anything wrong with those things? Listening to sermons, posting stuff on Facebook? Absolutely not. But if we're using that to substitute for the way that God told us He wants us to worship Him, He wants us to be in His Word, He wants us to share His Word among the masses, and sometimes we can use the new cart. Say, hey, this is the easier way. It's way easier to post something on Facebook than it is to have a conversation, right? I can hide behind my whatever, um, my photo or whatever the case may be, my Facebook page. Having a conversation is a little more difficult, but that's the way that God said he wants us to worship him. By sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel to all nations. It's way easier to roll the ark on a cart. Think about it, got wheels, you just push this thing. The cart was supposed to be carried. It was supposed to be carried. It's probably pretty heavy. I don't know how heavy, but it was likely pretty heavy. God's way was to carry the cart, carry the ark, not roll it down the hill. See, God's way isn't always the easiest way. God's way of worship is sometimes a difficult way. He says, narrow is the way and difficult is the path that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Not only that, God's way isn't our way all the time. His ways are far above ours. They're greater than ours. Either way, God wants us to do things his way. Not our own way, not what we think, not bringing the new cart into the situation. How is he revealed through his word how he desires me to worship him? He's looking at our hearts, but he's also looking at our methods. And though David's heart was in the right place, his method was completely against God's word. So they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Again, it was likely here for um, 70 years. Uh, it's been in this same city for quite some time back uh, in the beginning before Samuel even became the judge of Israel right about that time. And Samuel's long gone. So you just think how many years have passed. We see these two men, these sons of Abinadab, named Uzzah and Ohio. Now, there's no indication that these guys were Levites, okay? Um, the text doesn't say either way, but they likely weren't Levites, or the text would have made it clear. We see Uzzah, this name, it means strength. Uzzah means strength. And Ohio actually means friendly. Uzzah means strength. Ohio means friendly. You oftentimes find in our modern culture, churches that appear to be strong, maybe they got a lot of numbers, like 40,000 plus. I was watching this thing. Uh, I looked at this list of like the biggest churches in the, in the United States and, and Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale was up there. I think like 20 something, but you got some of these other churches, 40,000 people. And you look at some of the things that they teach in, they look strong, but 
They're not really honoring God because they've gotten away from the word. Now, it doesn't mean that if a church is big, it's not honoring God. No, we see in the early church, God multiplies his church. So the church should grow. But what is it becoming? What is it growing into? Just because it looks strong doesn't mean it's of God. Just because it looks friendly doesn't mean it's necessarily of God. See, these guys, they're going to go about, be a part of this false act of worship, if you will. And though it looks strong and though they appear friendly, it's not the way that God wanted them to carry the ark. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord, On all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. Okay, so this was a huge, big, exciting, emotional experience. They're ecstatic. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. But we can't evaluate our worship services or our acts of worship Those experiences based on emotion, based on excitement, based on loudness, based on the 30,000 people we got carrying this ark. Those things, again, they're not bad in and of themselves, but is it the way God intended it to be? See, so often, and hey, I get emotional during worship a lot, okay? I'm a baby when it comes to worship, okay? You could break my arm, I'm okay, but something about worship with the Lord, it just gets me choked up. That's just the reality. Emotion's okay, and the Lord invites it. But if we're looking basically externally and saying, oh man, this was so great because it was emotional and it was loud and there was a lot of people there, those things could be good, but they're not a direct indication that it's of God. What is? Well, when we look at his word and we make sure what we're doing, it's not just about emotion and loudness and numbers. It's about God's word and what he said in his word. They have all this excitement, yet they're not honoring God with this act of worship. It was loud, but it was disobedient. In Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, And when they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Okay, the uh, the threshing floor was when they separated the wheat from the chaff. Okay, so that's where this is. We see Uzzah, the, uh, he, 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 because the oxen stumbled, he gets scared and he thinks he needs to save the ark. So he puts his arm out to save the ark and Uzzah's going to die. See, Uzzah, as we mentioned, he touched the ark. And in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, you weren't supposed to touch the ark. In disobedience, he did. And God's going to end up striking him down. See, Uzzah, he thought he did what was right. But it wasn't right because it wasn't according to God's word. He thought, okay, I'm going to do something to help God, to help the Ark of the Covenant. But he wasn't helping God. He wasn't doing God a service because it was straight again disobedience. We can think uh, we're doing the right thing. 
But if it's not according to God's word, then it's always the wrong thing. Always. If we're not walking according to God's word, even if we think we're doing the right thing, it's, it's, it's not the right thing. It's the wrong thing. That's why it's so important for us to know the word of God, to know the word of God so that we know when we're walking in obedience and when we're walking in disobedience. See, our hearts can play tricks on us. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. And sometimes we can think we got the right heart about something and we're doing something the right way. But then the word God reveals like a two-edged sword piercing into the heart. Yo, man, that's off. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing isn't according to the word of God. So Uzzah, probably not even thinking he's being disobedient, reaches out, touches the ark, thinks he's doing God a favor. And then look what happens in verse 7. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, And God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. What? Really, God, what's your deal? I thought you were a God of mercy and a God of grace, but he's also a God of judgment, and he's also holy. Now, why would God do this? God's serious about his word. He's serious about his commandments. Now, he doesn't punish us every time we're disobedient, but sometimes he'll use us to make an example out of us. And that's what he's doing with Uzzah. He strikes him down, even though Uzzah probably thought he was doing something right. But we also have to remember something else. David's kingdom came after whose? King Saul, right? And what did King Saul always find himself in the habit of doing? Being disobedient to God's word, right? Being disobedient to God's word. He provided sacrifices, which only a priest was supposed to do. He went to mediums to seek counsel. He rejected God. He rebelled against God. He didn't kill the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when God asked him to. But David's supposed to be a different type of king. See, God was trying to use King Saul to establish his standard both for Israel and the surrounding nations. And he kept rebelling against God's standard. He's not going to put up with that with David. And David's going to make some mistakes. But he doesn't want David to start off on the wrong foot. He wants David's kingdom to be established based on the word of God and the direction of God and the commandments that God gave. So David, sorry, God, he makes a point out of this. Strikes who's a dead for breaking the word of God. David's kingdom is being held to a higher standard in this section. So God struck him for his error. But it wasn't just one error, okay? Uzzah, he made several mistakes here. He thought it didn't matter who carried the ark, okay? Not being Levite likely, he's carrying the ark. Thought it didn't matter. He thought it didn't matter how the ark was supposed to be carried. They put it on a cart instead of carrying it with the wooden poles, And then lastly, he thought he needed to save the ark of God from the threshing floor. And God had grace and patience on him with the first two things. But that last thing, three strikes, you're out. And Uzzah is struck dead. See, it was Uzzah's thinking that got him in trouble. It was his faulty thinking about how he thought God wanted to be worshipped. But his thoughts were off. His thinking was flawed. And it cost him his life. It literally cost him his life. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 6, 
verse 8. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. So David becomes angry, right? I thought I was doing a good thing for God, but he wasn't doing it the right way. And God disciplines him by taking out one of his men. Don't get mad when God disciplines you for being disobedient to his word. David's anger is not justified. It's not. He was the one that was in the wrong. Had he known the word and walked in the wrong, none of this would have happened. It's David's disobedience being the leader and not showing them how to carry the ark. See, sometimes God will discipline us because he loves us for getting away from his word. And we can get mad at God. Wait a minute, God. You know, so often you're showing me mercy, you're showing me grace, but this time you're really giving me, you're get, throwing the whole book at me. What's going on? Why, why are you being so mean to me? And we can get angry with God because of how He disciplines us and how He treats us, but ultimately it's us that's in the wrong. We can't play the game that, uh, with God that, that our punishment is greater than the crime. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Okay? The wages of sin is death. Anything beyond that is grace, right? So the fact that God disciplines us the way that he does is grace. It's all grace. We can't get angry when God disciplines us for being disobedient to his word. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David seems confused, right? How can I, I thought I was supposed to do this. I thought I was supposed to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the tabernacle and to Jerusalem so it could be the centralized place of worship. But God's preventing me. He, he won't let me do what I believe he's called me to do. When God disciplines us or prevents us from doing something, it's easy for us to take it the wrong way. See, God, it wasn't that God didn't want David to have the ark and the tabernacle. It was the way David was going about doing it. He wasn't going about it the right way. We can think God's preventing us from something because he doesn't want us to have that thing, but that may not be the truth. He might be preventing us from something, from having a certain thing because of the way that we're going about doing it. I say, man, I really like this girl or I really like this guy and I want to be with them. But God, he keeps preventing me from getting there and having that relationship. Well, yeah, maybe he doesn't want you to have it. Or maybe you're just going about it the wrong way. Maybe you're not, you're not doing it the way that God intended. You're not doing it by the book. When I say the book, I mean the Bible. If we're doing it by the Bible, we're doing it the right way. We're doing it the way that God has told us specifically he wants us to have it, then he'll open the door. But sometimes we try to force things. And when they don't happen, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How is this going to happen? I thought you said this, but why is this other thing happening? So what David's going to do is he's going to pump the brakes. And this is always wise. If you're in one of those places, it could be ministry, it could be a relationship, it could be a mission, it could be anything, some calling, something God uh, asks you to do, whatever the case may be. And if we're trying to go about it, whatever way, and the Lord puts something in our path, a barrier or some type, trying to prevent us, trying to get our attention, just pump the brakes. 
Why? Because we've got to realize, does God not want me to have this? Or is it the way that I'm going about doing this? Either way, God's preventing me from having this thing for a specific reason. So I'd be wise to pump the brakes and stop and say, God, what, what's going on here? Do you not want me to have it? Do you want me to do it a different way? And that's exactly what David's going to do. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 10. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside of the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom. The Gittite three months and the Lord blessed Odeb, Obed-Edom and all of his household. So David, what does he do? He stops. He doesn't move forward anymore. He knows something's wrong. So he stops pursuing what he wants. Okay. This is so wise, right? He doesn't know why God's preventing him. He just knows that God is preventing him. And if we're pursuing something that we desire and God prevents it once again, be wise to just hold up, take a break. Revisit this thing. God, what do you want? What do you not want? That's exactly what David does. He gives up the thing that he desires so that he can let God tell him if that's his will or not, whether he has the Ark of the Covenant. So David, he doesn't just leave it there in the middle of nowhere. He takes it to this specific house, Obed-Edom, okay? Now we see, I'll just give you these references if you want to write it down. We see in 1 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 4, that this guy was a Levite. Okay, he was a Levite. So this is the right type of person that you want to give the Ark of the Covenant covenant to. We also see in, in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, again, Numbers 4, 15, when it talks about the Ark of the Covenant and Moses, uh, this is actually the family that was supposed to take care of the Ark specifically. What does this tell us? When David stopped, he likely got in the word. He likely looked back at the scriptures and said, what am I doing wrong? I want to do things the right way. And he puts it in the right place. See, when we're not sure what to do, it's always wise to look to the word. Okay, God, I know you're doing something. You're bringing an obstacle in my life for some reason. God, what do you want to tell me? You want to tell me to do it differently? I'll do it differently. So David, now he's doing things according to God's word. He puts the Ark of the Covenant in the right place. And when he does, look what happens. The Lord blesses this guy and his whole household in verse 11. The Lord blessed Odom, Obed-Edom and all his household. The Ark's where it's supposed to be, or with the people that it's supposed to be at least. And the Lord's blessing it. See, God wanted the Ark of the Covenant to be a blessing to the people, not a curse. The curse came... When the people disobeyed God's word and they went about carrying the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way, they brought the curse on themselves. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So now David goes about getting the ark the right way. Okay, it's implied in the text because God blessed him. But we also see, let me show you in first Chronicles chapter 15. 
in First Chronicles chapter 15. This is uh, just uh, the same story, just a different account. First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 13. It says, this is David, For because you did not do it the, do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult Him about the proper order. So we see David consulted God, likely through prayer, in the Word to understand the proper order. David, he's worshiping God now, not just with the right heart, but he's doing it the right way. And it says it led to gladness. They had joy because they did it the way that God intended. Point number two, worshiping God. God's way leads to gladness. Worshiping God's way leads to gladness. David realized God isn't out to get him. He's not just trying to prevent him from doing this honorable thing. He just wants him to do it the right way. Do it according to the word of God. See, when God disciplines us, when we get off the on the wrong track, when we're not walking about the things the right way, walking down the narrow path, the difficult path. The Lord often disciplines us. As we were talking on Sunday, um, it's hard to kick against the goads, right? So he, he stabs us. He gets us. He sometimes hurts us. Sometimes, sometimes painfully hurts us, but it's for our benefit. It's to ultimately bless us. He's trying to lead us to this place of gladness, to lead us to this place of joy. And he says, hey, you're going about things the wrong way. This way leads to destruction. Okay, so I'm going to do what I need to do to get you back on the right track. Why? Because I want you to experience gladness. I want you to experience joy, the joy of the Lord. If you want, if you want the ark, David, and you want gladness, then, then there's a certain way I want you to go about doing things. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 4. Verse 34, in John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. What's he saying there? He's like starving at this point and his disciples are off getting food and he's ministering to the Samaritan woman at the well. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, I have joy. I have satisfaction. I have fulfillment in doing God's will, God's way. There's joy there. There's gladness. It's a byproduct of walking in the will of God the way God intended. That's exactly what David's doing. And now not only does he have gladness, all the people with him have gladness as well. But it doesn't end there. Back to verse 13. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Okay, we got to remember, we don't know how far away um, they got before Uzzah touched it and struck him dead. But you remember, uh, uh, Kirjath-Jerim was about 12 to 13 miles away from Jerusalem. Okay, think about this. Every six paces, they're providing a sacrifice for close to 12 or 13 miles. Imagine how long this would have taken them to get to Jerusalem. See, we learned something here. That God's way of worship, it requires sacrifice. That's point number three. Worshiping God's way is a sacrifice. Worshiping God's way is a sacrifice. It should always be a sacrifice. Later on, in the end of second, towards the end of second Samuel, it says this in verse 24, chapter 24, verse 24. Then the king said to Arona, 
No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. David saying, in other words, worship costs me something. Worship should cost us something. What does it cost us? Well, the New Testament says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, I'll paraphrase. It says, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or literally, literally your reasonable act of worship. Okay. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. He doesn't mean commit suicide. He doesn't mean kill yourself. He's put me just dedicate your whole entire life to me. Every bit of your life to me. That's your reasonable act of service. He, he said, I'm not asking too much. I'm not asking you. I gave my life for you. Will you give me your life for me? See, worship should always cost us something. If our Christianity isn't costing us something, then it's not a Christianity that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that our walk will cost us something. There will be things we need to give up. There will be things we need to forsake. But the good news is, is that Jesus tells us, regardless of what you give up, I'm going to give you a hundredfold of what you've given up. We always get more with Jesus. But Jesus often asks us to let things go, to sacrifice things. There's a cost. David counted the cost. He provides these sacrifices. Look what happened. Second Samuel chapter six, verse 14. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Point number four, worship God with all your might. Worship God with all your might. That's exactly what David is doing. This is in sincerity. He truly loves the Lord. And that's exactly how we're called to worship the Lord. Jesus said this, in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 30. Mark 12, 29 to 30. Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, love God with every piece of you. With the very essence of your being. The external, the internal. All of us. He He calls us to wholehearted worship, not half-hearted worship. Half-hearted worship isn't sincere worship. He says, worship me with all your might. That's exactly what we see David doing. So as David is dancing before the Lord, worshiping him with all his might, it says he's wearing a linen ephod. So some like say that David was naked during this, and that's why Michal, his wife, later gets upset. But we see in the text he's wearing clothes, okay? So David's not naked. He's wearing a linen ephod, okay? And this was significant because typically the king would wear royal garments. They'd wear royal garments because they're royalty. But what David's doing here is he puts aside the royal garments. He just wears what everybody else is wearing. He's identifying with the people. He's relating them, relating to the people. He doesn't want to be exalted during this time. He wants God to be exalted. I don't even want to be a distraction. We're here to worship God. The Ark of the Covenant is back. Then, as he gets back to Jerusalem, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. 
Mikhail, David's wife, thought that he was being inappropriate. This is a little too much. Shouldn't get all emotional about your worship of God. And she's going to criticize him for this. So point number five, worship God despite criticism. Worship God despite criticism. It's the anointing at Bethany. One of the greatest acts of worship ever mentioned in all of scripture. That's not just what I think. Jesus says that in other words. It's Matthew chapter 26, verse 6. We see Mary. I'm putting pieces together. This is mentioned in the other gospels as well. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, it says, And when Jesus was in Bethany... At the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him. This woman was Mary, we see from John chapter 12. Having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were angry, saying, Why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor? So Mary, she pours out this fragrant oil. People believe that this was her dowry. Because she loves the Lord. She was giving him her all. The disciples, specifically Judas, we see in John chapter 12, says, this is a waste of time. This is a waste of effort. This is a waste of energy. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's crazy. That's fascinating. See, some people... We'll look at our acts of worship, whether it's coming to church, whether it's playing Christian music, whether it's sharing the gospel or whatever the case may be. There's many ways to worship God. We worship him with our life, as I mentioned. But sometimes people look down upon it. They're like, why are you wasting your time? Tithe? You give money back to God? Like, why would you do that? You're wasting your time. You're wasting your effort. You're wasting your energy. Those things are valuable. You could use them for other things. Why do you use them for God? And what they see as a waste, Jesus sees as wonderful. He says, that's amazing. You're willing to sacrifice that for me? Yeah, I paid it all for you. But he admires that. He tells this woman, hey, guys, this this lady's going to be remembered in every gospel that's shared across the world. Mary's act of worship was criticized by the disciples, but Jesus commended her. Macau, 2 Samuel chapter 16. She's despising David in her heart. She's going to criticize him here in just a few verses. Look at verse 17. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So finally, the Ark of the Covenant is back where it's supposed to be. It was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. Okay, so finally, we're back to where we should be. The Ark is back. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 18. 
Sorry, then David offered, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. He continued to offer sacrifices. Why? Because worship is a continual sacrifice. It's not just one time. It's a continual sacrifice each and every day. Verse 18, and when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. See what happens when we worship God God's way? It not only blesses him, but it blesses the people of God as well. He blessed them. Verse 19, then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David, he comes home excited to bless his family. Guys, I did this awesome thing for the Lord. He he gave me this calling. I was able to accomplish the calling by the grace of God. He's ecstatic. He's excited. He wants to share that excitement with his family. And Mikal, great job, Dave. You really embarrassed yourself out there. Good job. Like you made the whole family ashamed of you. It's like, what? Really? This is one of the greatest things David ever accomplished. And his wife is beating him up. You made a fool out of yourself. Why would you act like that? So you've got to be really careful. Not just wives to your husbands, but all of us in general. When people get really excited about the Lord, really passionate about it, and they're doing things that God calls us to calls them to do, don't quench that. Don't say, you're making a fool out of yourself. Now, if someone's actually making a fool out of themselves out of, as a good friend, it'd be wise to say something. But don't quench their passion. Build them up, especially wives with their husbands. Husbands are called to be the spiritual leaders. And in most cases, that's difficult for a lot of husbands to do. And then you get excited about something. Come on, really? You're getting a little overzealous here. A little over-emotional, like chill down, bring it back a bit. We don't want to quench that with people. We want to stir up the passion. We want to build that into people. Yes, do glorious acts for God. The things that he's calling you to do. And don't just do it half-heartedly. Do it wholeheartedly. Just as David did. Do it passionately. Michal is criticizing David for his passion. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 21. So David said to Michal... It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. He said, I didn't do it for you. I did it for the Lord. This was for God. I don't really care what people think about me. I was doing this in sincerity and in truth. And he says, who chose me? God chose me over your father. Okay, this wasn't just like a direct insult. We got to look at what the text is communicating. Comparing two kingdoms. Comparing the kingdom of Saul. Michal was Saul's daughter, okay? So she saw things differently than David. What was kingdom uh, King Saul's kingdom all about? It was all about appearing like one thing, but being another. He had a kingdom of hypocrisy. He had a kingdom of hypocrisy, practicing spiritual things, but not really having a relationship with God. David's kingdom, 
based on sincerity and truth. He has a heart after God. The internal is lining up with the external. Mikal didn't grow up like this. Her father obviously didn't show a lot of emotion for the Lord. We don't see him showing any relationship with God whatsoever. She grew up in a kingdom of hypocrisy, and now she's in a kingdom of sincerity. So it throws her off. David says, hey, hey, God, he chose me over your father for that very reason, because David had a heart after God. It says, Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this. And will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. I don't think people see it the same way that you're seeing it. This wasn't me trying to get attention. That's why I took off my royal garments and wore a linen ephod. This is about lifting up God. In my sight, David says, uh, this was a humble act. This was a humble act. This was humility. This was all about lifting up the Lord. And the maidservants that you say are, are going to look down upon me. No, I don't think so. They'll recognize this as an act of honor because they realize what I was able to accomplish for the Lord and bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. But also they saw the heart in which I did it. This was really for God. This wasn't for myself. Lastly, in verse 23, therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, the text doesn't say that God judged her and didn't allow her to have children and closed her womb. That could have been the case because we see God throughout the Bible. He opens the womb. He closes the womb. All babies, a gift from God directly. God said, I'm the one that opens the womb. Now, if God did judge her, we could understand this kind of, right? Well, Mikal doesn't have a heart after God like David does. If we're raising children and this wife has bitterness towards me, that's a hostile household. We know David's household was hostile. This could have been an act of judgment because Mikal didn't share that same heart after God that David did. Or this could have been David. <laughs> this could have been David saying, I'm not going to sleep with my wife because she doesn't love God. And that's wrong, right? That was a wrong thing to do for David if that's what he actually did. Either way, Mikal. She's not able to have any children. Overall, as we close out this text, it's very exciting. It's an extremely exciting moment in the history of Israel. After 70 years, the Ark of the Covenant is back. However, it didn't come back on the first try. On the first try, David did it the wrong way. And he led the people worshiping God in a wrong way. And somebody died because of that. Nevertheless, God gave him another chance. And this time, David was able to look in the word, was able to seek God, and know the right way that God wants to be worshiped. See, God, he wants us to worship him in spirit, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, internally, absolutely, but also externally according to the truth of his word. Both of those things need to happen. Not one and missing the other or this one and not that one. Both things are crucial. It's internal, it's external, according to the word of God. If our heart's not in it, then that's not real worship. If it's not according to the truth, then that's not real worship. But when we're worshiping God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're worshiping according to the truth that he's revealed in his word, that's what brings God honor. See, God, he's looking at the heart, 
but he's also looking at the way that we worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you um, even use mistakes of men to teach us valuable lessons. God, and, and I pray that we would leave here recognizing the reality of how you um, desire to be worshipped through your word. God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth with every bit of our being. Lord, if there's anything that we're doing with our lives that's contrary to the way that you want us to do things, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to us just as you did with David so that we could get back on the right track so that we could live a life that honors you Lord that our whole heart would be in it and that we would also look at your word and walk it out as best as we can in Jesus name amen